This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is WBEZ's Weekly News Recap. Each week, we catch you up on the biggest local and state stories that you might have missed. Stories like these. The Chicago City Council unanimously approved a $2.9 million settlement for Anjanette Young. Compensation for the botched police raid first reported by the CBS2 investigators. Miss Young wasn't the first, and I pray to God that she is the last. City Council lifted the ban on sports betting opening the door for sports books in and around Wrigley Field, Guaranteed Rate Field, the United Center, and Wintrust Arena. Today, I am proud to announce that for the very first time, we're taking a massive step forward with a plan that will result in the sale of the Thompson Center. With us for those stories and more, Crane Chicago business government and politics reporter A.D. Quigg and John Byrne, who covers City Hall for the Chicago Tribune. We'll hear from A.D. in a moment, but John, let's start with you. The Chicago City Council had its final session for 2021 on Wednesday, and it gave the go-ahead for sports betting at Chicago stadiums. You covered this story. Give us the details. First of all, from, from your mouth to God's ears, that that is the last right. meeting of the year. <laughs> you never, you never know. But wait, um, there's more. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, the sports betting thing was it was a, a really interesting uh, situation to watch over the past couple of years, really. The, the mayor, Mayor Lightfoot, when the state first approved this idea uh, a couple of years ago, she came out and said that she was concerned that this would uh, undermine the tax revenue the city would get from its big planned casino with all this tax money earmarked for the public pensions. But then she uh, changed her position on that more recently and, uh, and and pushed it through over objections from some aldermen who said, you know, we're not going to collect a lot of money from these sports books at Wrigley Field, Soldier Field, the United Center, Wintrust Arena, and, and Guaranteed Rate Field. The city won't bring in a lot, only about 500000 a year, and we could stand to lose a lot more uh, if people who would otherwise be going to this casino are instead going to the sports books. Any idea how much money sports betting brings in and how much revenue the city would actually get from it? The the, the city's estimate is with this 2%, the, the mayor added a 2% tax pretty late in the process to try to assuage the concerns of some aldermen who said, why would we allow this betting when we're not making any money? But the city's estimate is still only about $500,000 a year off this off this 2%. So even their you know, estimates, it's not really going to move the needle for the city all that much. I'm still trying to figure out what this might look like. Do we have details on how sports betting might change the experience of, of attending a game? So is it going to look like Vegas when we go to the United Center? The, the, the clearest vision we have so far is the one at Wrigley Field. They, they've already started moving forward with plans for uh, for kind of an add-on building at the, what, southeast corner of the Wrigley Field 
property that'll uh, and, and Tom Ricketts as the Cubs chairman has testified a few times in the past week before the city council saying, well, this is going to be like it's going to be like a sports bar and pub where you will also have the ability to go to like kiosks and place bets uh, within a building, though, that's going to sit outside Wrigley. So clearly they're hoping that when Wrigley is dark, for most of the year, and, and the Wrigleyville Alderman, Tom Tunney, talked about this too, mm-hmm. that people come there to bet on Bears games and hang out and just experience the, the, the scene there and, and do some betting and eating and whatnot. Interesting. A.D., the biggest opposition here to this sports betting proposal actually came from Chicago's casino bidders. They're vying to build and operate a downtown casino that could bring in a jackpot of a billion dollars per year. Why do they oppose the sports betting ordinance? So the biggest opponent to this was Neil Bloom, who we know is um, the head of Rush Street Gaming, who is behind two of the Chicago casino bids uh, for Rivers Casino. And he testified this was like a a rare occasion of a billionaire um, deigning to join a Zoom for city council. (laughs) He came on and said, you know, based on based on my experience in other markets, when sports betting comes in, it could sap money away from the casino. And he he came up with his own study that basically said um, Chicago could be losing out on. 10 to $12 million in additional revenue from sports bettors that come into a, a physical casino and then end up playing other table games or pulling slots. So while the city doesn't make money off of sports books, Bloom's argument was that these bettors kind of have an ancillary impact on casino betting. Um, now, what the other side, these a lot of these sports teams argued, is that this is not going to be a huge deal. We're not mega casinos. And in the grand scheme, the city does get revenue just from a different place. So when, when sports bets are placed, those revenues go to the state, and the state is using them for vertical infrastructure projects, which means building improvements mm-hmm. that the city's going to see eventually. So it might not be going directly into the city's coffers, but it will go to improving you know, buildings at city colleges. Three casino bidders uh, made their pitches public yesterday. What did we learn? Oh, man, it was an all-day affair. And had a surprising amount of people from the public coming in and saying, uh, show us the proof that you're really going to be hiring people. Show us the proof that you're really going to deliver all these revenues that you want. Show us the proof that this isn't going to be a traffic nightmare in my neighborhood. So we got a preview from the city a few weeks ago on what these five bids are, from two from Bally's, uh, two from Rivers, and one from Hard Rock. And we got a better idea of how much revenue they're going to be generating, um, what the insides of the casinos are going to look like, and what the neighborhood around them is going to look like. So one of the one of the bidders, the combination of rivers and the 78, which is that big blank parcel of space just south of the loop, mm-hmm. um, actually did like a, a video walkthrough of what their what the casino would look like, what the restaurant spaces would look like, um, how the entertainment district, as they're calling it, would look. Um, Bally's did kind of walkthroughs of both of their sites and they got a lot of pushback for the one that would that they're pitching for the the Tribune publishing site because that corner of Chicago and Halstead is kind of a traffic nightmare so they had to kind of say here's our traffic expert saying here's how how this will work out and then we also heard a ton about diversity requirements so either uh, diverse investors in the business enterprise itself mm-hmm. or commitments that each of these companies were making for uh, black and brown people to work on construction contracts. All right, let's look at another City Hall story, a $2.9 million settlement for Chicago and Anjanette Young. It was unanimously approved. John, give us the backstory here. 
Well, we all have heard a lot about this wrongful raid from 2019, um, police acting on a bad tip that there was a man with a gun in uh, Ms. Young's apartment, uh, conducted a uh, raid, and Ms. Young answered the door. She was naked. They kept her. They handcuffed her. She was naked. They put a blanket around her, but it was like 10 minutes before they let her go into her room to put clothes on. The whole time she's pleading with the officers, you've got the wrong place, you've got the wrong place. So this happened before Mayor Lightfoot was elected, but Mayor Lightfoot's administration's handling of the situation after it came to light via CBS 2's reporting became an embarrassment for, for the mayor, as Ms. Young said that her administration was um, playing hardball on the settlement and, and the, the, the city tried to fight uh, the release of, of the video. So. This is uh, the mayor is very happy to you know put this behind her with yeah. this settlement obviously and it was a unanimous settlement as you as you pointed out which is pretty rare at in, in this day and age in these high profile police misconduct type cases there's usually some pushback from some aldermen there was none of that I think everybody realizes that that uh, uh, Ms Young was uh, you know put through a lot here and is pretty happy to have a settlement and move on from that. Any indication, John, that these lawsuits lead to actual reforms? Well, the the city has the, the police department has already uh, taken steps. Now they didn't uh, to to change the way they they do these uh, these no knock warrants and these these warrants where they are coming into to, to situations where they're where they're entering apartments. Uh, the uh, superintendent David Brown has instituted these changes to require higher uh, um, the okay from higher ranking officers that there be female officers on hand for for these raids uh, uh, in cases a situation like this where there's a woman in the apartment the the city did not go nearly as far as some aldermen wanted and the mayor was asked whether there might be more changes coming up, and she she seemed to say, "We think we've done enough. Uh, you know, we we've addressed this and, and put some changes in place." All right, uh, Chicago Alderman approved an affordable housing project near O'Hare Airport, despite opposition from that ward's alderman. It's a big blow for what is known as aldermanic prerogative over zoning. Fill us in, John. It's a, another very interesting case. You know, the, the far northwest side of Chicago, the, these bungalow belt neighborhoods like Edison Park and, and out by this is right on the border of suburban Park Ridge, actually, um, have long been areas that affordable housing advocates had said they won't let us integrate these neighborhoods. There's this there's this not in my backyard movement in places like this and, and aldermanic prerogative, which is this long tradition of the local aldermen getting to have de facto veto power over developments in his ward has prevented affordable housing from going up in these areas because white residents don't want black families moving in. Mm-hmm. So this is a this this has dragged on for years. This particular project was first brought up in twenty seventeen and it failed in twenty eighteen when the local alderman, Anthony Napolitano, uh, opposed it, and his colleagues agreed with him. But the developer brought it up again this year, and with a hard push from Mayor Lightfoot's administration, it made it through first the zoning committee and then uh, through the city council yesterday. Napolitano uh, gave a speech on the floor and said, 
this is a worthwhile endeavor, this particular project. Yeah. It's not right for my ward. And said to his colleagues, you are all right now giving up the ability to make decisions for your wards going forward and kind of cast the whole thing as uh, a big blow for aldermanic prerogative. I don't know if that's necessarily going to be the case. This was affordable housing on the northwest side, I think, is sort of a singular issue. You know what I mean? It, yeah. it, it had a broad swath of support. I don't know if you're going to see the same type of loss of control for aldermen on housing broad, you know, housing developments in their wards. This was a pretty big singular thing. So we'll have, we'll have to see whether it actually sets a precedent. And let's not forget that uh, proceedings in city council were halted for a while on Wednesday. Ambulances were called in for a medical emergency. John, quickly tell us what happened there and, and if there's any update. Uh, yeah, Alderman uh, Kerry Austin, who is the second longest serving alderman on the, the city council, uh, slumped over in her seat during the proceedings and the room was cleared. She was um, taken out on a stretcher and taken to a hospital. She, As of today, she was just uh, uh, a few minutes ago before I came on, I was listening to uh, a committee hearing and she was on the call there and or all her colleagues were saying how happy they were to have her back. So she was back back attending committee meetings today, okay. and it, it seems like she's doing all right. She's had some health issues in recent years, though, so it, it bears watching. I see. Let's uh, let's move across the street from City Hall to the Thompson Center, that massive glass building that looks like a UFO has landed downtown. It made news this week. Ad, what's the latest? Our downtown spaceship has been saved from the wrecking it's ball. Been saved <laughs> from the wrecking ball. Um, so the building has been uh, essentially a, a drag on state finances since its construction in 1985. If you talk to anyone that works there, it's too hot, it's too cold, it's loud, it smells like a food court, but it's beloved among preservationists because it was designed by Helmut Jahn and it's so unique. Um, so the, the announcement this week is that the state is going to sell the building to the Prime Group, who's a development group um, with a long history here. They're going to fix the heating and cooling and sound issues and turn it into essentially a, a private office space. Um, the state is going to keep its offices there, essentially buy back space from the prime group. Um, the CTA stop will not be closed, but it looks like based on the renderings that we've seen that that wonderful reddish pink and blue design element uh, will be gone. It's going to mm -hmm. be like this fancy glass modern office building with kind of um, hanging plants all over the atrium. Um, so gonna... <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just going to ask you how you feel about the Thompson Center, John, and this preservation. I, I, I still, I, I, you know, it's weird looking on the outside, but I still think that interior is one of my favorite interiors. I don't have to work in it, you know what I mean? So sure. I, 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 don't, I understand, but I love walking through it. I, I still think it's marvelous. It still <laughs> looks like the future to me when you're in the interior. I want to shift gears, A.D., is it something else that um, you've been looking at? Well, retail robberies, making the news still. This week's headline, a 16-year-old arrested for allegedly tasing a security guard and, and robbing two Magmile stores. You wrote that uh, Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox is reevaluating the city's retail theft policy. Fill us in. So Fox announced this policy change very early on in her tenure after she was elected in 2016. Uh, the short version is instead of prosecuting thefts as felonies when the goods stolen were worth $300 to $500, she said, we're not going to prosecute those as felonies unless the value is over $1,000. Now, retailers at the time were really upset with this, saying it would send a signal to thieves that they could get away with a lot more. 
Um, Fox said it was designed to put more resources toward fighting, toward prosecuting violent crimes. Um, but as we hear more stories of these kind of brash retail thefts, um, smash and grabs, organized theft where folks steal a ton of stuff and then put it up for sale on Amazon, storing it in warehouses all over the city, um, retailers have been really pushing on this, on her to rethink this policy. Um, so she, I had a conversation with uh, the head of the Illinois Retail Merchants Association, Rob Carr, who had a meeting with a bunch of other business leaders with mm-hmm. Fox in late November, and she basically said, I, I'm open to reevaluating this policy. Um, she's also going to be looking at uh, how she prosecutes other retail crimes, but what she, what her office has told me is we're not going to go back to $300. That's way too low. Um, we would be among the lowest prosecution thresholds among a lot of other states, and even Governor Bruce Rauner thought that that threshold should be higher. But it'll be really interesting to see what she announces, and we've just been hearing a whole lot more from big business folks um, that crime is scaring customers, scaring staff, and very expensive for them not only to uh, lose lose the stuff that they have in their stores, but to also take additional security measures to try to lock things down more. That's A.D. Quigg from Crane Chicago Business and John Byrne, City Hall reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And don't go away. We've got plenty more for you, including these stories. The Cook County Department of Public Health announced that the first known case of the Omicron variant was reported in the suburbs yesterday. The person is asymptomatic and has received at least two doses of the vaccine. Officials are rescheduling games for the Chicago Bulls after 10 players and several staff members tested positive, leaving the team shorthanded for tonight's game. This is a full-blown outbreak, and it seems like it's getting worse by the day. Governor J.B. Pritzker says he does not plan on running for president. This comes after a New York Times story listed Pritzker's name along with other prominent Democrats as a potential contender in the 2024 presidential election. So let's get to it. A.D., you covered this week Cook County Democratic Party officials deciding on its slate of candidates for the June 2022 primaries. Update us. Yes. So the races we were watching in this were the contested ones. So Secretary of State, Assessor, and Cook County Sheriff. Um, The big one was Secretary of State. It's an open race to succeed Jesse White, one of the most beloved and well-known politicians in all of Illinois. Um, Democrats somewhat narrowly went for Alexi Janulius. He's the former state treasurer and unsuccessful 2010 U.S. Senate nominee. He had a ton of money going into this, a ton of union endorsements, and he ended up with roughly 55% of the weighted vote. Um, There was a push to leave it as an open primary, but that effort failed. Um, The other three candidates in this, uh, Chicago Alderman Pat Dowell and David Moore and City Clerk Anna Valencia, all at this point say they're going to keep running. Um, The other thing that was interesting about this whole proceeding was uh, before the meeting, there was pushback from party members and candidates who didn't like um, this new loyalty pledge that the that Cook County uh, Democratic Party head Tony Preckwinkle had asked folks to sign, which basically said, um, "Don't go supporting other candidates if we've if we slated them." Mm. Um, the other big endorsements were for Assessor Fritz Kagey and Sheriff Tom Dart. They are both incumbents, so that's not terribly surprising. But there was some uh, pretty significant support for Carrie Steele, who is running against Fritz Kagey among um, Black committeemen in the Cook County Democratic Party, and she is still in the running. And eighty Governor Pritzker silenced rumors that he might consider a presidential run. Do tell. Yes, yes. Uh, this New York Times story threw out Pritzker's name um, among several other prominent Democrats as potential Biden successors because the president's polling is so bad right now, and he would be, I think, eighty-two years old uh, by the time folks were looking at ballots. So 
Pritzker's name was in there. Obviously, Vice President Kamala Harris, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, um, a bunch of other national governors who made their names on COVID response, essentially. Um, the story had said that Pritzker talked privately about his interest in seeking the White House at some point, should the opportunity arise. Uh, Pritzker said the thing you're supposed to say when you're the governor and running for election in 2022, which is, I love my job, I'm going to do it for as long as I can, and I've never spoken privately with anybody or publicly about that. But he did say he had been approached about it on occasion. So he's talking about it, but he's not talking about it. We'll keep an eye. Uh, what are the rumors, A.D., on, on who might enter the governor's race? Oh, what a wild week for this. Uh, so Thursday morning, I woke up to a series of tweets about uh, Ken Griffin, uh, the second richest man in Illinois behind Lucas Walton. He had pledged last month that he was going to do everything he could to essentially defeat Governor Pritzker. But it was very clear that of the four Republican candidates out there that he was not going to be backing any of them. So that has started speculation about, all right, has he found his guy? So Thursday morning, there were reports that Aurora Mayor um, Richard Urban would be the one getting into the race um, and that Ken Griffin was ready to spend as much as $300 million supporting whoever this candidate was. Now, Griffin's camp says um, he has not chosen anybody yet. He wants to pick, he wants to support Democrats and Republicans who are fighting crime and corruption and, and violence and profligate spending in the state. Um, I don't know where this is going to end up. I think we're going to know a lot more in the new year, like yeah. from early January. But the other name that got thrown out amid all of this um, Griffin speculation was Todd Ricketts, who was uh, part co-owner of the Cubs, currently part owner of the Cubs, um, net finance chairman for the Republican National Committee. He had previously said, I'm not interested, but his name kind of got churned up again in all of the in all the rumor mill stuff but because okay. petitions start getting passed in mid-january i think we're going to know a lot more in like early mid-january who's really serious about this and we have some gop candidates in the running too right we have four we have um uh, state senator darren bailey uh former state senator paul schimpf and businessmen jesse sullivan and gary Rabine. um my understanding from talking to gop people is um darren bailey is kind of is doing a decent job raising money. Uh, his name is obviously out there because he's been so vociferous against these uh, COVID mitigations, but we're going to have to see who else gets in and who might get out once Ken Griffin starts throwing his money around. John, switching gears, we learned this week that uh, Governor Pritzker's top advisor on marijuana was named CEO of the Marijuana Policy Project, a national organization advocating for marijuana legalization. She was pivotal in, in getting it legalized here in Illinois, right? Uh, Toy Hutchinson, who at the time worked with the uh, Marijuana Policy Project to get that uh, law passed in Illinois, and then was named this marijuana czar by Governor Pritzker and is now going to work for the marijuana lobbying group with which she worked to get the uh get the law passed in Illinois. So when it's one of those kind of classic uh, revolving door situations, I guess. But the, the Illinois marijuana rollout has obviously been extremely controversial um, given the the problems with minority applicants and the, the, the state's fits and starts to try to try to correct that. But uh, Toy Hutchinson will, will, will move on to do more nationwide uh, policy to probably try to get uh, similar laws passed in other states across the U.S. Yeah, some of her, her goals for Illinois 
remain unmet, right? Specifically, that social yeah. equity aspect. Yeah, right. Uh, the, the equity aspect has been has been a huge problem. It was the the idea was that that black and brown communities have have really you know suffered because of the uh, incarceration and, and charging of people when marijuana was illegal, and we're going to try to correct that now by by giving uh, black and brown people a real seat at the table in terms of owning and running some of these incredibly lucrative marijuana growing operations and dispensaries. But the fact of the matter has been that uh, these largely white-owned, you know, uh, uh, large conglomerates have gotten their foot in the door and gotten going so much more quickly mm-hmm. while there have been problems with the with the uh, equity aspect of it and, and the state's still trying to, to figure that out. We're, we're, we're in court on some of this stuff, uh, fighting over the equity aspect, and meanwhile these large operations are going on, going along, making a lot of money, and, and in some cases they're consolidating themselves and, and out-of-state groups are coming in and buying out local uh, operators. So, yeah, it's been, it's been a problem for a while now. Back to you, A.D. Let's turn to COVID. It's still disrupting our lives. New daily cases have been on the rise for weeks now. Now hospitalizations and deaths are at their highest point in months. How is this COVID surge impacting the business community? So what I have heard from business folks um, is they weeks ago they were planning January. January is going to be really the return to office. We've said it a million times, but this time is really it. And now that's getting put on hold for a lot of folks. Um, my colleague Ali Marati also reported that uh, restaurants are closing again, either because of cases among staff or mm-hmm. uh, general fears about the virus and fewer people coming through. Um, like you said, cases in Chicago are averaging 1,000 per day. 60 people hospitalized every day. Um, the virus is killing an average of seven to eight Chicagoans, roughly 50% increase from a week ago. Um, and Omicron is only barely here. We've had two detected cases in the state, one in the city and one in the suburbs, and they were both in vaccinated people, which also um, I think sends kind of a scary message about about how protected we are and how careful we should be. Um, but yeah, I think the biggest impact is, um, number one, how does this affect the return to work? How does this affect um, this nice surge in business that a lot of folks were expecting around the holidays? Mm -hmm. And what does it mean for uh, mitigations going forward? We've heard a lot of um, a lot of rumor about the state or the city perhaps um, changing mitigations to require vaccination proof to enter certain businesses. I was expecting something on that this week, uh, maybe next week, but it does sound like it's happening in part because of fears over Omicron, how quickly it spreads. Um, and because there's so much we don't know about how severe illness can be with it. Uh, and an arbitrator upheld the vaccine mandate for Chicago workers. Uh, John, the union tried to fight this. They lost. What, what's the deadline for city workers to get vaccinated? And what are the repercussions if they don't? It is uh, December 31st um, when all is said and done after many months of going back and forth and the the, the arbitrator, I believe, still has to rule on some stuff regarding the Chicago Police Union. The arbitrator, an arbitrator this week, ruled in favor of the city in a, uh, a suit filed by the Chicago Firefighters Union and some other unions that represent city workers. And so starting December 31st, the uh, city employees who haven't reported their um their vaccine status uh, could face termination in the in the new year. 
North Suburban Evanston High School is having a COVID outbreak and uh, announced that it's returning to remote learning for a week. And that comes on the heels of yesterday's seizure of two guns, which resulted in the school going into lockdown. Also yesterday, parents like me saw an, an ominous email sent home to Chicago Public School uh, homes and it, some archdiocese parents as well. Uh, it was talking about what they called a TikTok threat. What do we know about this, A.D.? Right. So schools across the Chicago area and actually across the country um, have been asking for increased police presence today in light of those circulating TikTok posts referencing a shooting at U.S. schools. Um, the Statewide Terrorism and Intelligence Center made all Illinois school districts aware of this um, potential threat. Uh, a bunch of area schools told TV stations they were increasing police as uh, a precautionary measure since there was no real credible threat currently out there. Um, the videos are kind of vague, um, which is why this is turning into a national phenomenon. Schools in Michigan, Washington, elsewhere are keeping kids home in part because these videos have a text warning of a bombing or a shooting, but without specific schools or mm -hmm. states or districts listed. But people are taking this seriously in part because there have been, you know, a handful of school shootings this year. I think nine active school shootings in 2021 and 235 what they call non-active shooter incidents this year. Um, one was in Evanston yesterday. Like you said, there was a lockdown, no shots fired, no students injured, um, but there were handguns recovered on campus and students had to lock down and basically quietly sit in their classrooms with helicopters buzzing overhead and, and police conducting a search. So this Jeez. this kind of thing is really, really scary and even scarier when when things are so vague and you don't know what exactly the threat is or who it might impact. Absolutely. Uh, let's uh, look at how COVID's impacting the sports world because it's just it's prevalent here in this city. John, I want to start with the Bulls. Huge struggles this week. Games canceled. Oh, my beloved Bulls. They were they were <laughs> playing so beautifully with such elan. It was so enjoyable, and now, yeah, they've really been they've really been hit hard. They had two uh, two games postponed this week uh, because they just they they had so many players that were in the COVID nineteen protocols. I think they're you know for the most part the coach says the team's vaccinated. Yeah. So ten of them, so ten this, players entered the league's uh, COVID yeah. health and safety protocols in, in the yeah. two week span. Right, and they were so they were pulling guys off free agents on these quick little contracts to try to keep going. And finally, the league stepped in and said, "Okay, these next two games you can take off." I think they are scheduled to play Sunday against the Lakers at the United Center, and that mm -hmm. that game is, I think, going to go forward as okay. of now. Good. But, uh, what about the Bears? The Bears are yeah. Now it seems like the Bears are entering what kind of where the Bulls were a few weeks ago. Uh, where, where we're suddenly seeing a rash of, of cases. They had three coaches just put in the protocols and like 10 or 12 players just put in the protocols as well for testing positive. So we'll have to see, you know, this could be the beginning of a, a big upswing on the Bears. And there's an upswing throughout the NFL right now and throughout the NBA. So this is just, you know, more of what we're, we're seeing in terms of an upswing in, in Chicago and, and elsewhere around the country in general. Oh, boy. And while the Blackhawks don't currently have any players in COVID pro protocols, they, they've had games canceled this week because of outbreaks happening on opposing teams. Wednesday, the NHL tightened its COVID policies because it was experiencing its largest COVID outbreak of the season. A.D., do you expect any more COVID cases here? Yes, undoubtedly. I, I don't see it going anywhere but up in the near term, at least, um, just based on 
how the charts have looked uh, at the city and county and state. I, yeah, I'm not optimistic about, <laughs> about the path. Not here. too hopeful. How about you, John? Yeah, right. I mean, we were, as AD pointed out, we just, we're just seeing the first few cases of Omicron and already we're on, on this significant upswing locally. So once Omicron kind of gets established here, I would have to think that things are only going to get worse with people traveling and all the rest of it over the short term. Well, we're going to leave it right there. That's it for the weekly news recap. Thank you to our panel today, Crane Chicago business reporter, A.D. Quigg, and John Byrne of the Chicago Tribune. A.D. and John, thank you so much and have a great weekend. That's it for the weekly news recap. The Omicron variant is impacting all aspects of our lives from family to our jobs and our leisure. But we'll stay on top of things for you to help keep you and yours safe. So make sure that you hit the subscribe button for this podcast. Then take a few seconds to give us a rating and a review. Doing that helps people find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend and come back soon. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.